It just is so good to see you all. And, and what I want to, what I want to, can't wait to talk to you today about this place in Scripture. Romans chapter 4, please turn. This is an exciting place. Let me tell you why. For those of us that, 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 that love to study the Word of God, it's fun to watch how, how things are built and how a, a premise is laid before us and, and, and there to convince us of what the Lord is trying to teach us about our lives. And this place in, in Romans is, is amazing because Paul is taking two people, Abraham, that we saw last week, and it says, he said to us last week, if, if Abraham is justified by works, then he has something to brag about, right? But what? Not before God. Because works doesn't, doesn't make it with God. So if, if he's done it by works, then he's got something to brag about, but not before God. On the other hand, he is now going to introduce us to kind of the, the counterpart of, of, I don't know that that's the best word, but he's contrasting, in my opinion, Abraham with David. Abraham was the, the father of faith. Abraham was the one whom God said, I want you to leave this place and go find a, 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 and build a nation. And, and, and Abraham went, it says in Genesis chapter 12, and it was reckoned to him. The word reckoned, as we're going to see in a moment, is a legal term. It was accounted to his account as righteousness. And so he did as God asked him to do. And then a little bit later God came to him when he was near 100 and his wife was in her 90s and he says, I'm going to give you a, a son and, and his seed will be like the stars of the heaven. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So when we looked at last week at, at Abraham, we saw a man who was of faith and that, that everything that, that he it was in his life was built on faith, not what he did. It was his trust in God, which was magnificent to Abraham. Well, Abraham's okay to, to study. I love him, of course, but David. Today, God is going to allow us to look through Paul at David. Now, David was more of a guy that was a scoundrel. Uh, I relate a little bit more to David, sadly. David was a man that, that did things that I haven't even done yet. And I, I, I pray that never will. Uh, but, but, but David, as you well know, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then not only that, when she was with child, he panicked and, and, and brought her husband home, uh, Uriah, from the front lines and said, you know, take it easy, go home, be with your wife, enjoy her. And, and, and Uriah said, no, I, I, not when my men are out there at, at, at war. I, I, I cannot. And, and so he slept on David's door, doorstep. And so David said, gave orders for him to go back to the front line, put him in the front line and say charge and, and let him be killed. And so David is this man. Today, what Paul is going to do is explain to you and me today, on top of Abraham, he brings us David so that we may see that we are not justified by what we do, but by in whom we trust in Jesus Christ. It's a, a great place. Now, this is my opinion. This, listen for this for just a moment, but you don't need to take notes on it because I'm not sure it's correct. It's just an opinion I have of what is taking place. I think I mentioned this to you last week. Paul has so leveled the people in Rome. 
He has so brought them to a place that they had no hope. He had already told them in chapter 1, starting with verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 18, that they are wretched. That there's none of them who have any hope at all. And so when he went in chapter 3, from verses 9 to 18, he said, there's none of you who are righteous, not even one. He says, you are all useless. I mean, he just levels them. And in my opinion, what has happened to their hearts is they, those of them that are, 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 are serious, that they want to have some relationship with God, and they want to know how. And all of a sudden, he's telling them, you have no hope. You're, you're, none of you seek after God. There's no hope, blah, blah, blah. And so I think that the congregation, the people there, started to think, well, I want to know God. I mean, that is a desire of my heart. And so they, I think they tried to muster up in their own system, their own belief, how they could be right with God, trying to be better and better and better, and trying to make themselves more of a, a righteous person so that they could be right before God. And I think that Paul, seeing this, in my opinion, saw what has taken place in their lives, said, no, you can't do that. You can't work your way there. Salvation is something that comes by faith and trust in Christ and He alone. And so He uses Abraham, and on top of Abraham, He brings us, I believe, someone that we can relate to even greater, and that's David. Now watch what He says. Read with me, please. This is such a great place in Scripture. He has just said, let's read it. It's only three verses. We did it last week. I'm not going to go through verses 1, 2, and 3 again, but let's read it again just to catch the flavor of what what Paul is saying to the people in Rome. What then, he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has, what, what has he found? If, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, verse 4, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessings upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And then Paul quotes out of Psalms 32, which we're going to look at in a moment. Verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. I want you to know David wrote th this psalm. Verse 8. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That was David's heart. David recognized himself, as it says at the end of verse 5, who justifies the ungodly. David, if there was ever a man that understood the idea of forgiveness, it was David. He needed that. He needed the very idea of confession and forgiveness. David was that man. And yet, and yet and still, God called David in 1 Samuel 13, 14, and in Acts, he called David a man after his own heart. If ever that would be a plea in my life, that would be it. And it gives you hope, I think, 
to understand that David was this man who did things that, that most of us here in this room haven't done yet. And yet God called him a man after his own heart because David was quick, as you're going to see during this message, he was quick to take his sin and to present it to God and ask God to forgive him. And sure enough, God did. And so that's what, that's what Paul is trying to present today. On top of Abraham, he offers to us the example of David. And it is, it is such a great contra contrast and so important to understand. So let's pray. Father, please open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Teach us, Father God, uh, as only you can. Move me aside, I beg of you, dear Lord. Allow us to sense your presence amongst us. Thank you for this, this school. Thank you for this, this room that we can meet in and, and have this opportunity to fellowship with one another. And Father, we look forward to what you have to us in, in the future, whatever that might be. Lord, we ask that you might bless it. Please, dear Father, bless us. Please, dear Father, allow us to sense your presence amongst us. I pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, remember this. David lived under the law. Abraham lived before the law was given. The law did not come along till 400 years after Abraham. Why do I mention that? Well, Paul uses these two Old Testament saints showing us that whether you're under the law or without the law, you cannot be saved by the law or by works. It must be by faith. That's what we learned in verse, in the, yes, last week with Abraham in verse 3. God reckoned, in other words, that's a legal term. It, it credited something to his, his own personal account. God reckoned his righteousness to, to Abraham because Abraham believed God. And this is the same thing with, with David. The truth of the matter is this. It wasn't the greatness of Abraham's faith that saved him. Now, I mentioned this last week. It was the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ in whom he, well, he placed his faith in, in Almighty God, but the coming Messiah, that's in whom he placed his faith, and that's in whom he was accredited or declared to him righteous. Remember I said that you and I are not to place our faith in our faith. That's, that's the wrong place to put it. We're to place our faith in our Lord People cannot find true Christian joy because oftentimes they've placed their faith in their faith and that has fallen short for them. No, we are to place our faith in the one who is greater than all of our trials, greater than anything and everything that we might encounter. And that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now after using Abraham as an example, Paul is going to show David and his imperfect life. Again, look with me at verses 4, 5, and 6. To the one who works, this is really an important verse. To the one who works, his wage is not reckoned or credited to him as a favor. In other words, it's not a, a legal term. He's worked for it, so he's not owed anything except what is due. That's what he's owed. Now, we're going to see a prime example of this in a, in a parable in a moment or two. A parable that Jesus Christ gave to the people who were following him. Verse 5. But to the one who doesn't work, 
but believes in him who justifies, no, the ungodly. Didn't mention ungodly with Abraham, ungodly here with David. His faith is reckoned or accredited to him as righteous, even the ungodly. Verse 6, just as David, who speaks of the blessings on the one in whom God credits righteousness apart from works. What Paul is making crystal clear for us to understand is that saving faith is something that is freely given and it's set apart from any kind of human works that you or I might try to muster up or do. What Paul is doing, it's subtle, yet it's very, very clear. He is saying that if you want to save yourself by your own works, then salvation isn't something that can be freely given to you. It's something that you learned. It's, it's something that you've done on your own. But to do that, Paul reasons in another book called 1 Corinthians. It's the 15th chapter. He reasons that therefore, if you were to do that, then you would nullify what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read to you. Um, let me see if I can. Yeah, find it right here. Let me hold my place in Romans chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's start with verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, he says, in verse 12, If Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. In other words, it's worthless. Your faith also is vain or worthless. Moreover, we have been found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, he says in verse 16, then not even Christ has been raised. And, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Next verse. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, Paul is, is making this statement to us. If righteousness is attainable by mankind apart from our Lord... Paul reasons, then salvation would not be God's gift to mankind. After all, he says in verse 4, it would be a wage that is due. In other words, you worked for it. You made it happen. It's yours. And therefore, he is reasoning, if that be true, then Christ is unnecessary. And it would rob him of the very purpose he came to earth. And that was to glorify himself and his Father. Let me read you. In this high, what is called our Lord's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 verses 1 to 5, Jesus was just about to go to the cross to die for the sin of the world. Jesus spoke these things, it says in John 17 verse 1. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. 
even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, to whom you have sent. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, our purpose, let me tell you something that perhaps you haven't thought of recently. The primary purpose of the Bible, of the gospel, is not to save man. The primary purpose of the Bible is that we would understand that our lives is to live to glorify God in all that we do. The Bible says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord, knowing it's the Lord Jesus Christ whom you are serving, whom you are glorifying, whom you are worshiping. That's, that's what we do. That's what we ought to be. In both the Old Testament as well as the New, God never ever provided any other means of our being either justified, just as if we've never sinned, or being righteous, having the righteousness of God in us. The only way He has provided in Old as well as New Testament is faith. That's, that's all it's ever been. Abraham is our example, David is our example, and all the New Testament saints are our example. And so if you look again at verse 4 of Romans chapter 4, Paul is saying, do you want to work out your own salvation? Well, if so, you're going to be paid what is due. But folks, I, I, Paul is pleading with us. Don't go that route. Because I've already told you, Paul is saying, out of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, that it's impossible for you to travel that route. You cannot do it on your own power. In one simple verse, he says in verse 10 of chapter 3, None of us is righteous. Not a one. Not one of us is righteous. And so Paul says this about David. This is where we get to the rubber hitting the road, as Dr. McGee might, might have said. He says in verse 5, rather than getting what you is due by working, he says in verse 5, but to the one who does not work, watch now, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. This is a shift in gears, folks. This, this one word, ungodly, takes us away from Abraham to David. In other words, the one who is helpless, the one who is lost, the one who is sinner, mentioned in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Those who are without hope. David goes on to say in verse 5, Paul does, about David, his faith, not his works, is accredited or reckoned, a legal term, given to his account as righteousness. If there ever was a man that was born who understood the grace of God's forgiveness, it was David, King David. And let's look at David's heart, verses 6, 7, and 8. David said, Paul writes, Just as David also... What does David do? He speaks of the blessings on the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And so David says out of Psalms 32, in fact, hold your place here. Let's turn back to Psalms. Psalms, you know, is in the middle of the Old Testament. Would you please turn back with me to Psalms 32? I want you to see it for yourself because I'm going to ask you to read it later. I'm not, it's not a homework assignment, but it's, it's, I would encourage you to read 
out of two places. I'm going to want us to read out of Psalms 32 and Psalms 51. But in, in, in here in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul quotes out of what David wrote in Psalms 32. And David wrote these words. Let me read what it says in, in Romans. David also, no, excuse me, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. See, David understands this. Whose sin have been covered. David understands this. Blessed is the person whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David gets it. Listen to David's heart in the 32nd Psalm as he writes, How blessed, verse 1 of chapter 32, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now I want you to listen to what David says. This is why I wanted you to read this with me. David writes, verse 3, absolutely key. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I want you to stop for a moment. Verses 3 and 4 was a, a chapel service. I, when I was reading this this week, it was a chapel service I did with the Dodgers, I mean years and years ago. And I was talking to guys because it was like the middle of the summer. It was August and, and it was the dog days of the baseball season. If anybody, well, you, you play 162 games and it's hard. After a while, it gets to be a grind because day in and day out, you go to the ballpark and you play a game and the guys were starting to get tired and I could see it and Tommy Lasorda came to me and said, pep the guys up, get them going, they're feeling dragging. And I preached to them out of this. And what I preached to them, not to pep them up, was to say, you feel like your vitality is being drained? No, I'm talking to you guys. I'm not, don't listen like I'm talking to them. Do you feel like... Day and night, you, you feel like you're groaning. As David says here, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. I asked the guys then, as I would ask you, if you feel that, that you lost a little pep in your step, I would encourage you to go home and take a look at the 32nd Psalm. Read it. And I would encourage you to get alone and, 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 and ask yourself and examine yourself, is there any sin in your life? Is there something in your life that's keeping you away from the true love of the Lord that you ought to have? I, I reason with you through David that, that you ought to examine yourself. Listen to what David says. I stopped at verse 4 on purpose. Verse 5, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Folks, I, I'm telling you, Dave, David understood the whole idea of confession and forgiveness. Paul's not using David to speak about faith in the part of works. He's using David, unlike Abraham, to explain faith through the, the idea of confession and forgiveness and being cleansed and receiving the righteousness of God because of your forgiveness of our sin. 
Now I ask you to stay here. In fact, if you would, turn to the right just a few pages to chapter 51 of Psalms. I'm going to read it to you in a moment. Until a person confesses that they are ungodly, until a person understands that they are a sinner, need to be saved by the grace of God, that person is not a candidate for salvation. Reason being is because that person might get the idea that they can trust in their own goodness, in their own works, in their own abilities to be right before God, which is impossible. David clearly understood God's grace. Listen to his heart. Psalms 51, unlike Psalms 32, came right after Nathan came into David's life. And Nathan came to David and said, You are in sin. You had an affair with Bathsheba. And you had her husband Uriah killed. David cast himself entirely upon God's grace once Nathan convicted him as an ungodly sinner. Psalms 51, David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4 is one of the great verses in all of the Bible. Against you and you only I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. So therefore, he says at the end of verse 4, you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. I want you to jump down with me to verse 10 in this same, same uh, psalm. David says these words. Again, I ask you to go, if you have the time, to read through Psalm 32 to, this week and Psalm 51. He says in verse 10, Create... In me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I want you to know verse 11. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon a person and leave a person at, at, at time. It wasn't like today. Today we live in the, the age of grace. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, He never leaves us, nor will He ever forsake us. But David's prayer here in verse 11 is, Don't cast me away from your presence, Lord, and don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. Rather, he says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. I want to stop short again of another verse. I want you to consider those verses, verses 10, 11, and 12. Because it is after verses 10, 11, 12 that verse 13 takes core. Then, David says, whenever you see a, a, a transition like that, really take note of it when you're reading the Bible. 
Again, I say to you, when you read the Bible, don't read it through while you're thinking about, I wonder what I'm going to cook for dinner tonight. Or I wonder what I got. Oh, I know. I got to take out the trash. And you read, you know, and you're not really listening. Get someplace where you can listen to what you're reading. I would encourage you not, at least in my opinion, is not to read through a lot of the Bible. Take a little section of it so that you can really mull upon it. You see, after David says in verse 10, creating me a clean heart, Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't take me away from your presence. Don't take the Holy Spirit away from me. Restore the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then, he says, sinners will be converted to you. If there's any purpose for you and I to live right now as believers in Jesus Christ, it's verse 13. If you want to know what I do while I'm waiting, while I'm listening to you guys sing, which I enjoy beyond your wildest dream, in fact, I really enjoy it here because it filters through into there where I am pretty cleanly. And I can hear it. And I love it when, when Anthony kind of shuts down the, the, the guitars and stuff and I can just hear your voices. But what I'm doing back there before I come up here is I'm praying. I'm asking God to convict me of whatever sin it is in my heart so that I don't walk here into his pulpit, into his, his arena of preaching his word with sin in my heart. Because more than anything, I want, I think, what you want. And that is, I want people to convert to Jesus Christ. In fact, it's interesting. Let me just say this, for whatever it's worth. Last night at, at, at First Baptist Church, we had a really a nice attendance of people. And, and, a, and a, a gentleman came up to me that I had been seeing there, but I had never met. And uh, I've been looking forward to meeting him, but it just hadn't happened. And he walked up to me and he said, he said, sir, and I said, please call me John. He said, um, he said some really nice things. And this morning, a gentleman came up to me that I hadn't recognized, but I'd seen him here before, and he almost like it was a cookie cutter of what the gentleman said last night about the message. Now, you know, and I know, it's not me. It's, it's the Lord's word that touched their hearts. If we have within ourselves a clean spirit, a clean heart, if we have created in us a heart, O God, that is steadfast, then, then, and then he will teach transgressors of their ways, of his ways, and sinners will be converted. And that's what I want for us as a, a church, more than anything. I want people coming to Christ. After that, what I want is for you and me to grow in our faith, to be a people of true faith. So David has cast himself entirely upon God's grace. He says later in this particular psalm, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. He says he doesn't delight in sacrifices. Otherwise I would give it, David says in verse 16. No, you're not pleased with burnt offerings. What you want is a broken spirit. Verse 17, a broken and contrite heart. So David casts himself entirely upon God's grace, seeing himself as an ungodly sinner. David knew that only God could purify and wash away his sin and blot out his iniquities. Only God, David knew, would create in him a pure heart. Only God, David knew, would deliver him from guilt that sin produced. Only you ought to know those things. You, know, you ought to 
no, only God can do that. I really blew that line. Let me tell you what our Lord says about why he came to this earth. It's a pretty telltale verse. It's in Luke chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus Christ said these words, I, I didn't come to call the righteous. What? So I didn't come to call the righteous. Why? Well, my guess is because the righteous believes that they can work out their salvation in their own muster. They can, they can do it on their own. They, they can work their way there. So he says, I did not come to call the righteous. Luke 5.32. He says, but I came to call sinners or the ungodly to repentance. Men like David. People like you and me. I want to show you a parable. On the way back to Romans, would you stop with me at Matthew chapter 20? I'm going to give you a twist on a parable that you probably know. It's the parable of the vineyard. It's where Jesus taught on God's unbiased grace, unmerited favor. But I don't believe you've ever looked at it through this perspective before. Which is, this is the reason why I believe our Lord gave it. From a human perspective, well, let's read it. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven, this is a parable our Lord has given about a vineyard. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went on out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When, they had, when he had agreed with, by the way, the, the landowner, of course, is God in this scenario. When he, the landowner, God, had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day's work, he sent them out into his vineyard. Then he went out about the third hour. That's about nine o'clock in the morning. So he reached these guys about six o'clock in the morning. They agreed on a price of a denarius to work for the day, and he sent them out into the vineyard. So about the third hour, about 9 a.m., he saw some others standing out idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You too, go out into the vineyard. Whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth hour. That's about noon. And the ninth hour. That's about three o'clock in the afternoon. He did the same thing. And then about the eleventh hour. About five o'clock in the evening. Just before quitting time. He went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here all the, idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, Then go out into my vineyard. And when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those who were hired about the eleventh hour came, he gave them each a denarius. I can only imagine what the ones who were working at six o'clock were thinking. Oh boy, we're going to get more money. But when they came to him, what did he give them? Well, let's read. It said when, and then when those hired about the 11th hour, verse 9, verse 10, when those who he hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. And they also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. They said to him in verse 12, wait a minute. I, I added wait a minute. They said in verse 12, these last men have worked only an hour. You made them equal to us? We've borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. Verse 13 said, He answered them and said to him, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours. Go your way. But uh, I wish to give the last man the same as you. 
Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what I own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? I want you to know something about this. Our Lord did not defraud anyone on that day. Here's the true meaning of that parable. By God's standard, every person's work falls short of earning the redemption needed. In other words, what he promised the guys in the morning and what he gave the guys at night was the same. On the divine scale of perfect righteousness, even the most devout, long-serving Christian is not one bit closer to earning salvation than the most vile criminal, criminal who have ever walked the face of this earth, who might even be on their deathbed. Which, by the way, was my dad's hang-up. My dad in his later years, like he was about, I guess, about my age then now, then. And I was reasoning with him about salvation, and, and my dad came up with this scenario. He says, you mean to say to me, there's a guy on death row, and he's being marched down the, the, the thing to go to the electric, trail, electric chair. And on the way, some guy asks him if he wants to trust in Christ, and he says, yes. Is he saved, son? And I said, yeah, Dad, he is. He said, then I don't want it. He says, it's, a, it's not fair. It's not fair. Well, we reasoned together more and more and more, and my father ended up coming to Christ. But what he did was give the scenario of our Lord when he was on the cross. Remember? Remember there were two thieves? One of them was hurling abuse, it said, at the Lord. And he was saying to him, if you're who you say you are, save yourself and us. And the other one said to the other criminal, said, hey, leave him alone. He's done nothing wrong. We deserve what we're getting, but not him. And then he said, and I, I, I know this sounds foolish, <clears throat> but in the scenario of time, I would have loved, if I could have taken the pain, to have been that second thief. It was such a statement of faith to me. After he corrected the first thief, he said to the Lord, Have mercy on me. And the Lord said to him, You remember? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Oh my goodness. What a statement. What our Lord is teaching us through this parable of the vineyard and that incident that happened on the cross because that thief couldn't straighten out his life. He had no opportunity to do anything more than to ask Jesus Christ for forgiveness, mercy. You see, faith is God's only condition he accepts faith in lieu of your works, your intelligence, your pedigree, your position in life, the wealth that you might or might not have, whether you're rich or poor, your nationality. Dear Mercy is just as, as much aware of all things in Ghana as we are here. With God, there is no distinction. You ought to be happy about that. 
You see, God justifies the ungodly, you and me, not by simply disregarding our sin, no. God justifies us by placing our sin upon His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty in full for our sin upon the cross. Therefore, God reckons or accredits, accredits to your account the righteousness of Christ because, and this is a verse, two verses that are so taken out of context. You hear it all the time. It's in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. It says, listen, talking about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, Surely our grief he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But, verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we have been healed. Now, healed from what? Sickness? That's what you hear often. Heavens, are you kidding? No, people get sick all the time. No, he has healed us from our sin and from death. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? It's gone. Our Lord has died for us. And because God credits our sin to Christ's account, therefore he can credit Christ's righteousness to our account as well. Sound simple? Well, salvation, the gospel is not brain surgery, folks. He's put all the cookies on the bottom shelf for us. He has accredited righteousness for Abraham. He has accredited righteousness for David. And he has accredited righteousness for you and me if you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. A person of genuine faith is blessed because their lawless deeds have been forgiven. That's what the example of David is all about. Don't you love Scripture? Last week it was Abraham. You and I might not have been able to relate to Abraham. But I'll bet most of us here can relate to David. And his lawless deeds have been forgiven because his sins have been covered. Because the basic sin of his fallen nature is gone. Verse 8 of Romans chapter 4. The Lord will not take his sin into account because he put it on his son. Not David, nor you, nor me. Abraham was justified only by faith. David was justified only by faith. And you and me have been justified only by faith. I don't know about you, but I'm one happy individual that I can stand in the, in the presence of our Lord and, and alongside of people like David, Abraham, Paul, all the other saints of old. And, and we all have the same footing. We all stand because of God's grace, forgiven, not by what we do, but by in whom we trust. 
Thank you, Father. What more can we say? You have said it all through Paul. You've given us more than we've ever, ever deserved, and that is eternal life. It's, it truly is good news. And so as we walk into this time of the year, this, this season of Christmas, Father, where we celebrate, not everybody, but we do, we can celebrate the birth of your Son and just worship Him and just make a fuss over Him because, just because. And so, Lord, thank you for this moment in time. This day of, um, I don't even know what day it is, November the 25th, I guess. The year is 2012. At 12.18 in the, mor in the afternoon, we can really straighten out our life with you. For those of us here who know you, we can, um, we can investigate kind of uh, not be silent about our sin anymore, but bring it to you like David did. And for those of us who here might not know you, we can take this moment in time, this day in, in all of lifetime, to come to trust you as our Lord and Savior and give you thanks for who you are. Bless us, Father, please. Watch over us, Father, please. I pray in Jesus most precious name. Amen. Have I told you I love you? Well, if I hadn't, shame on me. I love you with all my heart. Thank you so much. Have a great, great day. Thank you.